0: All right. Well, if you were with us last week, we started, finally started uh, our study of Deuteronomy. And we basically did a background last week of Deuteronomy. And one of the things that we said in the background was that if you begin to read Deuteronomy... um, Actually, let me ask you this. Anybody do their homework? Anybody read Genesis and Exodus this week? I know that's a lot to read in a week. (laughs) Yeah, kind of skimmed it, <laughs> looked at the MacArthur study notes. Uh, so um, what, what I'm going to do this week is run through Genesis and Exodus, because again, if you go read Deuteronomy, it's kind of built in to the narrative that you understand what has happened prior uh, to Moses expounding these sermons and uh, and preaching on the plains of Moab. Um, and so again, we don't have time to to read all of it in here. But what I want to do, and the reason I gave you notes, I started making a slideshow, and I was like, well, good grief. This is going to be an insane slideshow. Either that, uh, and so I was just like, I'll print the notes out. We can just walk through this together. You can take this home if you want. And, um, but again, it's like having a good understanding of this makes Deuteronomy make a lot more sense. It puts it in the context. It helps you to have the, the narrative that has happened before in the background. Uh, because again, Moses is speaking to the second generation of Israel before they go into the promised land to take the land that God promised to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, and, I mean, all these things were foretold back in Genesis. He told them exactly what was going to happen. They're going to go down to Egypt. He's going to bring them out. He's going to take them to the land. He's the one that's going to lead them and give them the land. And so that's where we're at, on the plains of Moab. And, uh, you know, everything from that to the exodus to the, you know, the, um, uh, what happened at Sinai, when God showed up in fire and darkness and gave them the law, all of those things Moses is going to be talking about. And when we get to those passages in Deuteronomy, we will refer back, but... To have an understanding of the whole thing just makes what we're going to be reading, make, it makes it a lot more clear, and it makes a lot more sense. And, and I never want to assume that you have read these things before. Um, so I, I thought what we'd do this week and next week is we're going to cover two books a week. Genesis and Exodus this week, Leviticus and Numbers next week. So obviously this is a flyover, uh, big picture, barely touching the, the, um, uh, the content but I gave it to you in the notes, things that I thought, focus in on this, focus in on this, focus in on this. So these are just kind of touch points throughout Genesis and Exodus to kind of look at, because I think it helps you when you when we start looking at Deuteronomy. So today, that's what we're going to do. If you want to open your Bibles, you can, but you're going to be flipping a lot. Uh, if you just want to look at the notes, you can do that too. Or you can, uh, if you, like me, like to mark things in your Bible, this is a, this is a good opportunity to do that. So if you open it up in Genesis, basically... This is a good outline of Genesis. I mean, you can make different outlines. These are just, when we make outlines of books, what we're trying to do is remember the content of the book and it kind of frames it up in a way that helps you see the big picture. So this is the outline that I'm using in, in the notes that you have in front of you. But if you look at Genesis, and we're going to fly through Genesis, the focus today is going to be on the book of Exodus. So basically, you got four events that make up the first eleven chapters: the creation, the fall, the flood, and then you know the, the dispersion of the nations after after the flood off of the ark, and then uh, from Babel. And then on the other side of Genesis, it's focused on four people. Once the nations go out, there's a focus after that on one nation, the nation of Israel, uh, which is not formed yet, but God chooses Abraham, tells Abraham he's going to make a nation out of him, give him the land, all that, and that promise goes through his son Isaac, through his son Jacob, and then through the narrative of Joseph, you see how that group got down to Egypt, uh, which is going to open up or begin the the book of Exodus. So, so starting with the four events, basically chapters 1 and 2 are about creation uh, I just highlighted Genesis 126 there just to show you that uh, that man is made in the image of God, uh, in his likeness, um, and uh, and that comes up later because God's going to send his son in the likeness of man to be the sacrifice for our sin. Um, and so you got creation, chapters 1 and 2, there's no sin, and then chapters 3 through 5, you have the fall. Uh, one just thing to point out there, again, that's just part of the whole story of Scripture is in Genesis 3.15, you have the first prophecy of this one that will come and crush the head of Satan. Basically, this is the first glimpse of the the coming Messiah that, again, was going to come through the line of Abraham, is going to come through the nation of Israel, is going to be the redemption of mankind. And that's going to pop up throughout Deuteronomy. But that's the first prophecy. Uh, he shall bruise you on the head. I always told my kids it means crush. He's going to crush your head. And, you know, if you crush someone's head, they're done, right? And so this is the first prophecy of Christ coming to uh, to end Satan and to be the redemption of mankind after sin. Genesis four, you got Cain and Abel. Genesis five, basically you got genealogies from Adam all the way to Noah. And the reason it doesn't, you know, I always tell my kids this too. There's certain genealogies, and they're for certain purposes. This gets us from Adam to Noah, which is the 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 patriarch or the main one that makes it through God's judgment of the the first earth. If you want to say it that way, him and his. Uh, three boys and their wives. And so you get to Genesis 5. Genesis 6 through 9 is the flood. uh, And basically, after the flood, you have the first covenant in the Bible, which is the Noahic covenant. Uh, And basically, in that Noahic covenant, God is saying the created order is sustained by the word of God. It's his unconditional covenant. Day and night, summer, winter, all these things, they will never end until the the end. And so, you know, no matter what people tell you, uh, you know, that our carbon... Di- uh, you know, monoxide fumes are going to destroy the environment, or we got it. Whatever. It's like those things can't happen. I mean, created order is going to stay until the Lord ends it. Uh, the Lord, by the way, is the one that will destroy this earth, not our pollution. And the Lord is the one that will redeem this earth, not our efforts. Um, but in the in the flood, you see that. So one of the points of uh, or the understanding of the Noahic covenant is knowing that God will sustain all things until every word of. Or everything in his word is fully accomplished, including the return of Christ, his thousand-year reign, and all of that. And then after that, this is kind of where I think you start getting, you're getting more and more narrow on, on what we're going to be looking at in Deuteronomy. After the flood, you got the generations of Noah. So it takes you from Noah all the way down to Abraham's birth. Um, and in that, you begin to see what God is is focusing on here. Um, in Genesis 10, 15, you have the origin of all the Canaanites. So they were the descendants of Ham. So, I mean, again, all these people came off the boat. All these people knew who God was. If there's nations in this earth that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, their forefathers at some point dropped the ball and did not do what God commanded all of us to do, which is to train up their children. You know? So you've got to think about that. And remember that for your own family. There are generational effects for all of our sinfulness and our lack of faithfulness. And can you imagine that? You are unfaithful to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with your children. Now, again, their own salvation, that's on them. But if you lack in your faithfulness and they aren't believers and they don't tell their children, they don't tell their children, there's a whole line of, 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 of uh, unbelievers that can come from your lack of faithfulness. God can intercede. God can save any of those people at any point if he wants to. But it just reminds us. We got to make sure that we're faithful as parents. And so, all that being said, the origins of the Canaanites—they came uh, from the line of Ham uh, in Genesis ten thirty-two. All the nations were separated on the earth after the flood uh, in Genesis eleven. You got the story of Babel, uh, and then it starts focusing in on the line of Shem because Shem, the son of Noah, is going to be the line that gets you to Abraham. And again, it's, it's like, you know, you got Adam, and then you got down to Noah, and then you got from Noah to Shem, and then you're going to have the line of Abraham after that. And he's getting more and more focused on the head crusher is coming through this line. But for our study in, in um, Deuteronomy, it's good to know uh, some of these things. In uh, Genesis eleven sixteen. 16, you got the line of Eber. Eber is the patriarch The reason that they're called the Hebrews is because of Eber. Eber was one of the last ones that lived for four hundred years. After that, you see his son Peleg or however you say it, only lives two hundred years and after that they all live like two hundred years and then they get it 's down into hundreds and so he would have been alive after his Uh, son and grandson and great-grandson and great-grandson died, Eber would have, it's just like, he just kept living. And so he was this patriarch that lived for 400 years, and the Hebrews were named after Eber. And at this point, you get down to the one nation that mattered, which is the nation of Israel, which leads us over to four people. So if you flip the page, this is where it really starts getting not only interesting, but this is where... uh, there's a lot of things from this point forward that it's good to know when you read Deuteronomy because it's kind of the key to unlocking what he's, he's saying in Deuteronomy. First thing is God calls Abraham to leave his family and to leave the nation that he's in and to go to another place. And I'm going to start reading some of this now. In uh, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, you got it right there, the Abrahamic covenant. God's going to make a covenant with Abraham. But the first thing is he basically kind of hints at what he's going to do and he tells Abraham what to do. Uh, It says, the Lord God said to Abram, go forth from your country, he's in the land of Haran right now, um, and it says, and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land. Now, this is going to be important. From this point forward, God is going to start talking about the land over and over and over, and it's a specific land that God is going to give to Abraham and his descendants. He says, the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, uh, and you shall be uh, a, a blessing And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So one of the first things he says is basically, I'm giving you a land, I'm going to make you a nation. All the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. Uh, And he says, I'm, I'm going to take care of you. People try to fight you, they're fighting me. If people bless you, well then that's going to be part of my blessing. But God is going to sustain and keep him. Uh, and like I said, from this point forward, when you start seeing the proper land, the 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 land uh, from Genesis 12 through Revelation, it's talking about this promise that God made with Abraham. This is not the Mosaic covenant. This is not a conditional covenant. This is an unconditional, unilateral covenant that God made and must perform on. He has to fulfill uh, what He said about this covenant. Uh, and so, in Deuteronomy, you're going to see this land, 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 land. Every time you see the land. It's, he's talking about what he told Abraham. Does that make sense? Because you're going to see this other covenant come up, the Mosaic covenant, uh, or the law, and those are different. You know? So the, the land covenant, this promise of the land is something that is, it began before the nation of Israel and goes all the way to the return of Jesus Christ. Uh, Deuteronomy 8, I just gave you an example. We don't have to read that one, but basically this is Moses talking about the land. And, what, and it gives a description of the land that they're about to inherit, the land that God promised Abraham. Uh, In Genesis 12, 6, uh, it says Abram, he got to the land and he passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem. Now, the reason I brought that up is we mentioned a couple weeks ago about Shechem. Shechem becomes important. Abram is there earlier. He's right there at the Oak of Morah, which we talked about that as well. Um, And uh, the Canaanites were in the land at the time. This is where Jacob in Genesis 35 returns back from Haran with his family. And remember, they get rid of their idols and they buried them under the oak at at Morah in Shechem. And then... um, not Joseph, Joshua. So that's supposed to be Joshua there. In Joshua 24, he comes back to the same. After they conquer the land, they come back to that very same site in Shechem. And they renew the covenant, probably reading Deuteronomy. Uh, and he tells them to put away their idols. And so it's just kind of neat to see that. In Genesis 12, Genesis 35, Joshua 24, same site over and over and over. God revealing himself, uh, uh, them worshiping God um, I just thought it was interesting. Genesis 13, uh, basically, uh, the Lord says to Abraham, uh, oh, this is after a lot left him. He tells him to lift up his eyes, and he tells him, all of this land, everything that you can see, the land of the Canaanites at the time, I will give to you and your descendants forever. This is an unconditional, eternal covenant that God has made with the nation of Israel. That's is his land, and it belongs to him, and they are the ones that belong on that land because he has given it to them and the descendants of Abraham. Uh, Another interesting thing in Genesis 14, the reason I threw it in there is because this pops up in Deuteronomy 2, Uh, in this land, and you know it from, if you know the story, remember the Israelites got scared when they are at Kadesh uh, Barnea and they don't go into the land because they say it's like full of giants? Well, it's, it's true. There were giant people in that land. There was probably many people Goliath-ish size. We know that Goliath had many brothers in Gath. We only know his uh, size because it's, it's given actually how tall he is. But if you read in Genesis 14, you got the Rephaim, the Zuzim, the Amim, and the Horites, were, which were all giant people. They were big people. And you see already uh, the one of the kings of the time, he's going after all the, the biggest people. He's trying to Destroy all the giants because, again, little people like us are afraid of people that are three feet taller and super strong. And and so the way you take the land is get rid of the people that can crush you. And so you already have uh, them attacking and trying to destroy all the giant people of the land. You see the same thing in Deuteronomy. Uh, David kind of finishes the job when he becomes king later. Um, And Joshua will do some of this when he takes them into the land. But there are obviously giants. They are in the land of Canaan, which means they probably came from the line of Ham. Which means, you know, Noah and his sons, they might have been big people. Uh, or uh, maybe Ham married a huge woman. I don't know. But, like, there they, they were big people there. And when we talk about big, we're not talking about six foot ten. I mean, Goliath was about nine feet tall. Uh, and, you know, Og, king of Bashan, it talks about him. And his bed was 13 feet tall. So he was a, I mean, it doesn't mean he's 13 feet, but he was probably a big dude. Um, and so uh, it's just showing you that it's already showing you there are, large people in the land of Canaan. Uh, Genesis fifteen is when the Abrahamic covenant is actually ratified. This is a very important chapter to read and to know. Um, He took Abraham outside. He says, look to the heavens, the count the stars, if you're able to count them, so shall your descendants be, he says. Uh, And and it says Abraham believed the Lord and he reckoned. God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Again, there's salvation by faith and the grace of God in the Old Testament. Uh, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. So right before they actually, God cuts the covenant with Abraham and ratifies it and locks God, if you want to say it, locks himself into his own oath. Uh, he tells them, I've get, I'm giving you this land. And if you keep reading in verses 13 through 21, this is when the covenant is ratified. It says, God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants, look at this, I mean, he tells them before it happens exactly what's going to happen, uh, and this is what uh, the book of Exodus covers. Your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, that's the land of Egypt, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. He even gives them the time I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterwards, they will come out with many possessions. Exactly what Exodus says. They, they basically, they, by the time they came out of Egypt, they asked for all the gold and they gave it to them. And they plundered the Egyptians. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here. And he's telling them that while he's standing in the land. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So again, Israel coming into the land is part of a promise that God made, or it is the promise that God told Abram, or Abraham, but he's also the, the punishment or the judgment of the people of Canaan for, uh, for not worshiping God. So God is pouring out judgment on those people and the inhabitants of that land, but he's using this nation that he will build uh, to do that. And then it goes, uh, it came about, when the sun had set, which was very dark. Behold, there appeared a smoking oven, a flaming torch, which passed between the pieces. Again, go read the content. This is a sacrifice they made, and, and this is God passing through it. Abram's asleep. So, this isn't a covenant God made with Abram, and he's like, You do your part, I'll do my part. He puts Abram asleep, and God does the cut. Co- this is God's going, I'm going to do this. It has nothing to do with Abram's obedience, or his people's obedience, or Israel's obedience. It has nothing to do with that. And so, it has everything to do with God's faithfulness. Uh, and it says, um, The Lord made a covenant with Abram. Saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river Euphrates. That's a big area. If you go look at it, uh, they never inhabited and controlled all that land except for a few years under Solomon. He ruled the 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 whole, if you want to say it that way. But still, there weren't Israelites throughout that whole land. Uh, and it says um, it's the 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 Kenite the. The uh, Kenizzite, uh, the Kadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, the Rephaim, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Girgashite, and the Jebusite—those are the ones that live there. I'm going to give you all their land. So that's just a very, very important chapter. That's when the from that point forward, God must deliver because He has sworn an oath, uh, and 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 He said He will do this. In Genesis 17, you have the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision, a reiteration of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, and the articulation by God that he will fulfill this covenant through the line of Isaac, not Ishmael. Um, and uh, Genesis 17, 7-8 talks about that. He says, I will establish my covenant. Again, he doesn't say our covenant. This is my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. It's an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you, I will give you and your descendants after you the land of your sojourning. So the land that you are wandering in right now, Abram, this will one day belong to you and your descendants, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Genesis 17 is the sign of the covenant from that point forward. Israelites or the people of Abraham are supposed to circumcise themselves to show their submission, obedience to God, and being a part of, of God's people. Genesis 17, 18 through 22 um, uh, this is where God says specifically it's going to be Isaac, Isaac's line that will receive this covenant. So again, you got the it's again just narrowing it down, narrowing it down. We're getting to the point where it has to be Jesus Christ. There's no other possible person that could be the one that will bring about um, all of this. Uh, but he says, uh, "You shall call his name Isaac." So it's not Ishmael. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant. And again, in the bold at the bottom of that verse, my covenant I will establish with Isaac. It has to be Isaac and can be no other. Which again, when you know God tells Abram to go sacrifice Isaac, that's very important. That's what Hebrews talks about later. God, or Abram knew that God had to raise Isaac from the dead. It showed Abram's faith and trusting the Lord. But it's not like there was going to be an Isaac part two. It had to be this one. And God said, sacrifice him. So Abram had to trust. Well, I'm going to obey God. And even if he has to raise him from the dead, I know that promise has to happen. And it has to happen through the line of Isaac. In Genesis 19, this is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. You got Lot who, uh, there's an incestuous relationship with his two daughters. The reason I even threw it in there is because this is where the Moabites and the Ammonites come from. Those are... If you want to say it like step siblings or siblings of the Israelites, uh, and you're going to see this take place in in numbers, you know God tells them don't don't mess with the Moabites, don't mess with the Ammonites, don't mess with the Edomites, which is the line of Esau. So again, it's still family, uh, but the Moabites and the Ammonites actually come out against the Lord or against Israel, and because of that. They actually end up attacking and taking the land. And then later, in Deuteronomy 23, he says, No Ammonite or Moabite shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. But it's good to see that's where they came from. So again, understanding that, when we get there, it makes sense that he says, Don't touch them. They're family. Because they came from Lot and his children. Genesis 21, Isaac is born. uh, And God said to Abram, Don't be distressed. Uh, Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac, your descendants will be named. I just threw it in there one more time to show you. Very precise, God says it must be Isaac. So then we get to Isaac, 25 to 26. Isaac doesn't get very long narrative. After Abram dies, he gets two chapters, and then we move on to Jacob. But in those two chapters, there's a very important verse uh, in Genesis 26. God reiterates, renews, if you want to say it that way, the covenant he made with Abraham with Isaac, and tells Isaac, you are the one. Uh, He tells him, sojourn in this land. So Isaac never left that land. Uh, And I will be with you and bless you. uh, For you and and to your descendants, I will give these lands. And I will establish the oath, which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. I will give your descendants all these lands. Uh, And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Again, this is exactly what he told Abraham. He's telling Isaac... He's like, it's going to be through you. Um, then we move on to Jacob in chapter 27. Again, it's, uh, it's not that Isaac dies there. It's that the narrative changes and the focus becomes Jacob at this point. Uh, Jacob is uh, one of Isaac's sons. Uh, and in chapter 27, Jacob and Rebekah deceive Isaac. Uh, and you see Esau wants to kill Jacob. And so Jacob flees to Haran, which is where Rebekah, his mom, is from. The reason I threw it in there is because it's in this chapter. It talks about um, uh, Esau being read. They call him Edom, and it's the Edomites come from Esau. Again, the Edomites are going to be very important in Numbers and then in Deuteronomy. Uh, Genesis 28, Jacob flees to Haran. Uh, That's where you have the whole him dreaming, seeing the angels coming up and down the ladder. The reason that's important is because in that vision, God reiterates the covenant that he made to Abraham and to Isaac to Jacob and says, you're the one, not Esau, you. Uh, And he says, the Lord stood above him. He says, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, where he is laying down, having this dream, I will give it to you and your descendants. Uh, He goes on to say, in you and in your descendants shall all the family of the earth be blessed. Again, the reiteration of the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob, Jacob, it's going to be through you. Um, And he says, and I will bring you back to this land. Uh, Genesis 29 through 31 is him out of the land, in the land of Haran for 20 years, serving for um, uh, Rachel and Leah, and then serving six more years uh, under the, the, uh, the, in the family of Laban. Uh, and then he returns back to the land of Genesis 32. Uh, he, in that uh, chapter, you see him wrestling, striving with God, and that's when God renames him Israel. And the name Israel actually means to wrestle or to fight with God, which is a good name for the nation of Israel. Even though they're God's people, he's given them land, it's always a fight, and it still is a fight to this day. Um, but he says, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. So again, his name means what the nation is, and, uh, and they fight with God, they strive with God, uh, they will prevail. Uh, it'll be Christ who is the one that uh, redeems the nation, brings them back and reigns on the throne of David in that land for a thousand years. In Genesis 33 through 36, uh, you see Jacob come back. He makes peace with Esau. Jacob lives in Shechem, and which is cool. We're back in Shechem. And then in Genesis 35, you got that whole story we talked about when we say 1 Corinthians, they bury all their idols in Shechem and they commit their family to worship Yahweh God and Yahweh alone. Got rid of the idols. One good story in the nation of Israel. <laughs> um, and uh, there, there's some other good stories, but that was a, a good day. All the idols are gone. Uh, in Genesis 35, now that Jacob is back. He's been broken, humbled, and now he is a God follower. Um, he, he reiterates the covenant again. Uh, he says, Israel shall be your name, and thus God called him, Jacob, Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful um, and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. So he's He's getting more particular about what's going to happen uh, to him and his descendants. And then here's the land again. There it is. The land, which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your descendants after you. So there it is. That's the last one that God makes this promise with. It's not the, uh, the, the, the promise doesn't go through Joseph. Joseph is the next person But he's there for a particular reason. And so after that, you got actually Genesis 36, he gives the whole line of Esau, which is, again, important because it has importance in Numbers and Deuteronomy. It also has importance at the end. We saw that in Revelation, which is really neat. Genesis 37 to 50, is uh, the focus is on Joseph. The reason the focus is on Joseph uh, is because it is through Joseph and what happened to Joseph and Joseph's... Uh, role in Egypt that Israel was able to come down to Egypt where Jacob and his family and they were able to inhabit the land of Goshen and they were able to be there for 400 years and thrive until a certain time in the future. So I'm going to fast forward through that. There's some main points there, Genesis 38, Judah and Tamar. um, But basically Genesis 42 through 50 you have the family of Israel leaving the land of Canaan and going down to Goshen in Egypt uh, under the help and protection of his son, Joseph, who is second in command at this point under Pharaoh. Um, and Joseph says God's purpose in putting him there. This is why his brother sold him into slavery, and this is why God raised him up in Egypt to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. God not only put Joseph there to save many people through the famine, but particularly to save the family of Jacob because he had to, because the line of the Messiah is going to come through him and all the Abrahamic covenant has to be fulfilled and it must come through the line of Jacob. So in Genesis 46, God tells Jacob or Israel, go down, it's fine. Go down there, you're going to be there for a long time. You're going to die, I'm going to bring the people back. This is part of the plan. He says, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, I will make you a great nation there. That's where I'm going to build the nation of Israel. Um, and he says, I'll go down with you in Egypt. Uh, I will surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. In other words, when he says, I'll bring you up, I'm going to bring your descendants. I'm going to bring the nation up, and, and but you're going to die in Egypt. Uh, God does not renew the covenant with Joseph, again, which is an important point. Uh, Israel tells Joseph about the covenant. Uh, in Genesis 48, he tells him this, and he says... Uh, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous. I will make you a company of peoples. I will give you this land to your descendants for an everlasting possession. And so then when he dies, he tells Joseph, um, uh, I'm sorry, uh, when Joseph dies, he believed in this whole promise that his dad told him about. And he says uh, that God will do this. He will bring you up from the land. And when he does, uh, he asked them to to take his bones up. I, don't, I didn't put that in there. But uh, he says, uh, he will bring you up from, the, uh, from this land of Egypt to the land of Canaan, which he promised on an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that leads us up to the Exodus, which is super important for the book of Deuteronomy. So if you want to, actually, I think you're on the same page. So then we get to the book of Exodus. You got four hundred years of God building Israel in Egypt, and then you got the narrative picked back up uh, with the birth of Moses. You got the oppression of Israel in Egypt in chapter one. Chapters two through four is Moses being born. Moses, you know, killing the dude, fleeing out to the the desert, uh, marrying uh, Jethro's daughter, all that sort of stuff. God meeting him at the burning bush and telling him, "You need to go back. I'm going to use you to bring him out." So that's two through four uh, in uh, Exodus five through thirteen. You see the actual deliverance of the Israelites by the hand of God through the leadership of Moses. Um, And the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Uh, For under under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, Lord, Yahweh, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also, so he's telling Moses 400 years later, establish my covenant with them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he's talking about the Abrahamic covenant to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Again, this land is very important. Uh, and, and again, when, the, you know, when we're on the plains of Moab and they're looking out to the land and they're going to take the land, what God is doing is fulfilling what he told Abram a long time ago. That's the whole point. Um, but look at this, God is the one. It's not Moses, it's not Joshua, it's God who will do the delivering and God who will give them the land. He says, "Um, I have remembered the covenant I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I, also, I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with a great judgments. And I will take you for my people. I will be your God. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your God. Uh, I will bring you to the land. I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. So, again, God is going, it's going to happen. I've made an oath. I'm going to do it, and it's going to be you that leads them, and it's going to be the, their children that walk into that land. Um, so again, you got the Abrahamic covenant, the land, all this sort of stuff. Uh, Exodus 7 through 13, you got the narrative of that actual judgment of God on Egypt, and Pharaoh pushing them out under compulsion, just like you said. Uh, I just wrote down the different plagues that God brings about on the Egyptians. He makes a distinction between Israel and Egypt, and eventually the Israelites come out. They plunder the Egyptians. They ask for all their gold and all their stuff, and they give it to them. They're just like, please get out of our land, and they leave. Um, in uh, chapter 12, this is very important, the Passover is explained. Again, Deuteronomy 16 is going to focus in on that, and it helps you understand what the Passover is. The Passover also marks the beginning of the whole nation of Israel and the new calendar. Basically, that day, Israel began, and time began for the Israelites. The Passover was day one on their calendar, um, and, and he tells them, when you enter the land, uh, that, that your children will say to you, why do we do this Passover thing? And it's because this is when God delivered us from the nation of Egypt and made us into the nation of Israel. When they get into the land in Joshua 5, right before they attack Jericho, the first thing they do when they enter the land is observe the Passover. They entered the land, uh, they observed the Passover, which means it was the first day of the first month of the first year of them being in the land, and they uh, observed the Passover, uh, and that's the day that the manna ceased, uh, and that's the day that they began to eat the produce of the land of Canaan. Uh, in Exodus 12, um, you see them journey uh, from Ramses to uh, Succoth. Uh, 600,000 men, a mixed multitude. That means it's more than just the Israelites. There's probably some Egyptians that were like, this guy is God and I'm going with him. And so uh, anybody that wanted on board to this great deliverance uh, went with them out of the land of Egypt. Um, and look at this. This is, I put this in there because it gives you a time marker. The time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. Look at this. And at the end of 430 years to the very day, which means, they. I mean, like God is precise about when he... Leads them out. All the hosts of the Lord went out of the land of Egypt. Uh, in Exodus 13, uh, you got them camping right next to the, uh, the Red Sea. Uh, and you got the presence of the Lord. I think this is the presence of Jesus Christ himself. And the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud being right there with them. Leading them out of Egypt. Uh, and he'll lead them through the entire wilderness. Uh, and that's the next point. For 14 to 18, you got Israel getting from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. So they, they go through the wilderness for... Three months, I believe. I think I wrote it down. Uh, they're in the wilderness for about three months, and they get to Sinai. So that from the Red Sea to Sinai. Uh, and let's see. Yeah, Red Sea, they, they go through the dry land. Pharaoh and his army are destroyed. Actually, that's important, too. We talked about this in the background. At that point, you know, because Egypt had territorial control over Canaan during the time of Joseph. Uh, it says all the Canaanites brought them all their money and all their cattle and all that. And so Pharaoh acquired all the land of Egypt and all the land of Canaan during the famine, and he owned it. And so that was Pharaoh's land. But here Pharaoh and his army are crushed, which gives the Israelites a window of opportunity there where Egypt is re, you know, regrouping, and, uh, and probably don't, they don't care about Canaan at this time. They're probably focused on Egypt, the nation of Egypt. Uh, and it allows the Israelites that opportunity to go in and to take the, the, the land. And this is just part of the Lord's perfect timing and perfect providence. Uh, Exodus 14, uh, Moses told the people, do not fear. Stand by. See the salvation the Lord will accomplish for you. They're, the, they're going to watch him divide the sea. The reason I threw that in there is he says, the Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. This is something that gets reiterated over and over and over to the Israelites. Stop worrying. Stop looking at how big they are. Stop worrying about the weapons they have. Stop looking at the whole land and going, we can't do that. Just trust the Lord. You be quiet. Let him use you to do exactly what he's the one that's promised to give you the land. That's the strength. God will be faithful. But you see it at the Red Sea. And I threw in a bunch of different places here. In Numbers 14, people of Canaan, he says it again. When they meet Og, king of Bashan, he has to say it again. Deuteronomy 1 through 3, three times as a reminder of all these victories. He's telling them, remember what the Lord did. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. And then he's going to focus them on the land in front of them. Do not fear. And then he tells Moses again, he tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. Again, this is this is their struggle, to trust the Lord, to do what he said he was going to do, which is exactly what you struggle with and what I struggle with, right? We, we, we're like, oh, we trust him. God's sovereign. He's powerful. He's awesome. I have faith. And then it comes into like, you got to you got some little tests that you have to walk through and you're like, I don't know how we're going to do this. You know, and it's like, again, do not fear. Be strong and courageous. Trust the Lord. Uh, Genesis, or, I'm sorry, Exodus 16 through 18. You see God provide for the nation of Israel and you see them grumble and complain over and over and over. The reason I threw it in there is because this is going to pop up in Deuteronomy. He's going to say, remember, remember, remember. And so this is you getting to see it. And uh, like I said, if you go back and read it, it It's very helpful. I forgot we're in Exodus. There's your outline. <laughs> uh, Exodus 16: the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumble against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Uh, Exodus 16: 30 through 35. That's when the manna began. Um, it says uh, when they saw it on the ground, they called. They said, "What is it?" That's what manna means. What is it? <laughs> so they, they kept eating. What is it for 40 years? Uh, they didn't know what it was. It says Moses. This, it was the Lord bread which the Lord had given. Again. It, it, it's God, it's Christ, If you want, now that you understand the New Testament, that sustained them and fed them bread and gave them water throughout the whole journey through the wilderness. Um, even though his name was not Christ or Jesus at the time, it was still God who led them, uh, gave them manna, uh, the bread that he fed them in the wilderness. They kept some, uh, put it in a jar so that all the generations could remember that God sustained you by bread that came from heaven during this time. And they ate it until they got into the land of Canaan. Exodus 17, uh, you you see the rock, or the the water. Throughout this wandering, God would give them water that just came out of nowhere. And he sustained them by uh, the water that flowed from the rock. And particularly here in Genesis 17, 1 through 7, the reason I wrote this down is because the words uh, Massa and Meribah are going to pop up over and over. And it's to remind you of this particular place where God gave them water out of the rock. So let's read this one. This is the rock at Horeb. By the way, Horeb is just another name for Mount Sinai. Mount, the, uh, Horeb and Mount Sinai are the mountain of God. All those are the same place. So they are at Mount Sinai at this point. They've just arrived. They're thirsty. They don't trust that God will deliver them, even though he's been giving them water and bread out of heaven. But here they are again, grumbling and complaining. The people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me and test, why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses. Then they said, Why now have you brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with these people? A little more, and they will stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile, and go. Look, Look at this, this is important. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock and water will come out. I mean, so again, I just, this is, this is the pre-incarnate Christ right there with him. Uh, and, and he says, the people will drink. Moses did so on the side of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massa and Meribah because they quarreled with the sons of Israel. So again, those are just important place names to remember because they're going to come up. And when we see Massa or Meribah, you go, oh yeah, that was when they were right there at Sinai. They were right there at the mountain of God. And, and God was right there and gives them water out of the rock. And I believe this is, I showed you in Deuteronomy where it pops up. Uh, And since we just read 1 Corinthians 10, 4 together, I thought this is good to kind of piece it together. You got Paul saying that the water they drank, it wasn't Moses' power. It was Christ. Christ is the one. Christ was the rock. Christ was the water. Christ was the one nourishing the Israelites throughout. That's why their sandals didn't wear out. That's why the pillar of fire gave them light at night and they could travel through the night. The pillar of cloud protected them from Egypt and, and the Pharaoh's army. That's how they ate and drank and all that. Christ was sustaining them in the same way he sustains us right now, but in a different way too, special way. So Exodus 18, you got Jethro, which is Moses' father-in-law, also called uh, Reuel. So if you see that, it's, this, it's not like he had two father-in-laws. Uh, he just had two names, uh, I guess I got Charles and Brian. I don't know. Maybe you got two or three names, too. But uh, So they called him. I don't know. Uh, maybe the names mean something. But uh, basically, the reason I threw Exodus 18 in there is because they're going to bring that up in Deuteronomy as well. The time that uh, Jethro gave him the counsel to train up, to teach them God's commands so they can help you to judge. And so Moses is going to talk about that in Deuteronomy. All right, flip over to the next page. This is where it gets super important. This is where I wish we could just start reading Exodus. But that's your homework for this week. you got to read Exodus 19 through 24 at least. You can do that this week. And I think it's very important because this is like what Deuteronomy talks about over and over and over. This is where God shows up in fire and darkness on Mount Sinai. Moses goes up and gets the Ten Commandments. God gives them the law. He comes down. They're worshiping a golden calf already and being like, this is Yahweh God who led us out of Egypt. And God's like, no. And, and and they destroy the idol. And then Moses has to go. God's about to obliterate him right there. Moses reminds God of the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And which, again, just shows the faith of Moses. God can't destroy him because God's going to be faithful to his word. And then he replaces the Ten Commandments and then tells Moses, I will be with you as you go through the desert. But... I'm going to destroy this whole generation, just like they said. They were like, you're going to lead us out here to die. And God's like, well, I'll give them exactly what they're afraid of. And they all die, and it's their children that are going to go into the promised land, which is where we are in Deuteronomy. It's the children. The children that are all 40 to 60 that would have seen these things happen, and then the 40 years of children that were born during the wandering. Uh, But again, this is super, super important. I even had a note there to read it. But I'm just looking at the time, and I'm like, I don't know. Let me read a little bit of it, because it's super cool. Exodus 19. So you got the third month. There's a time marker. So it is three months after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. On that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Uh, They set out uh, from the Rephidim. They came to the wilderness of Sinai, camped at the wilderness. Israel camped in front of the mountain. This is Mount Sinai, or Horeb, or the mountain of God. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain, This is important, verses 4 through 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Again, they were all there. How I bore you on eagles' wings, brought you to myself. Now, then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples of the earth. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And then God shows up. And this is amazing. Uh, God says, I'll come to you in a thick cloud so the people can hear when I speak. Uh, and you'll believe uh, in, in, in you forever. In verse 16, he says, so it came about the third day when it was morning that there was thunder and lightning flashes, a thick cloud upon the mountain, a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people in the camp trembled. In verse 18, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and in smoke. I'm sorry, and it's smoke ascended like the smoke of the furnace. So you got fire and darkness and smoke and trumpets. And, uh, and then it says, when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, God answered him in thunder. I mean, can you imagine? No. <laughs> we have no way to, to grasp like what it was like to sit there in the presence of God on this mountain. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai. The Lord called Moses to go up to the top. So again, the reason it's good to read that, uh, Deuteronomy 4 and 5 recount this and give you insight into what happened on that mountain. Now then in chapter 20, you got the Ten Commandments. This is Moses up on the mountain and God telling him exactly what the law is, what the covenant is. I'm making a covenant with Israel. This is a different covenant than the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is a conditional, unilateral, everlasting covenant. This covenant right here that he's making with the nation of Israel is conditional. You do your part, I'll do my part. You don't do this, I'll still do my part. Uh, if, if you obey, I'll bless you. If you disobey, I'm going to destroy you. But even that will give glory to my name, and all the nations will know when they see the remnant of it, uh, the, the destroyed walls and, and the people scattered throughout the earth, they'll go. Well, God said he did that, or God said he would do that. And so no matter what they do, it will prove God's faithfulness and it will prove His glory. But in chapter 20, you got the Ten Commandments, you got the articulation of the covenant. Uh, In chapter 23, you got the three national feasts. And then in chapter 24, basically... This is when the covenant, if you want to say it this way, is kind of ratified. God says these things. Moses articulates it to Israel. The people of Israel say, we will do that. We will obey. We will follow you. We will love you. And so Moses wrote down all the words in verse 3. He recounted all the words. In verse 4, he wrote down all the words. Uh, In verse 7, this is the book of the covenant. Uh, And then it says, he read it in the hearing of all the people and said all that the Lord had spoken uh, or they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, we will be obedient. So this is the covenant taking place. Uh, the people of Israel saying, we'll do our part. Um, and, uh, and then he says, behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So that's when the Mosaic covenant is ratified with the people of Israel right there at Mount Sinai. Again, this is what Deuteronomy is all about. The second generation, he's going to recount all the things that God said, and they're going to proclaim... We will do those things because their parents are all dead because they didn't do those things. And they're going to walk into the land, and they're going to be the the generation that actually uh, inherits the land. Um, But then they fail, too. Um, So, anyway, there's the the glory of the Lord is over the mountain. So, like I said, I think chapters 19 through 24 are super important and good to read. Just to keep flying, uh, Deuteronomy, uh, well, that's just... Me showing some things in Deuteronomy that point back to the people doing this. Joshua 8's the same thing. When they get into the promised land, he reads Deuteronomy again. They renew the covenant, and the people there in Shechem again say, All that the Lord commands, we will do. Even though they got their idols in their pockets, they're like, We're going to do it. (laughs) Let's see. Uh, Exodus 25 through 31 on the next page. God gives them the design of the tabernacle tells him exactly how to make the Ark of the Covenant, the table, the showbread, the golden lampstand, the curtains, the boards, the sockets, all that stuff, the veil, the screen, the Holy of Holies, the bronze altar, the court of the tabernacle, the garments of the priests. I mean, precision. It looks exactly like this. And then uh, he consecrates the priests. He sets them apart for the work of God. Um, In Exodus 30, the altar uh, for the Holy of Holies uh, and the instruction for the high priests are, are made. And then in Exodus 31, he says... I'm going to equip two people with my spirit to be able to do all this or to oversee it. It's not like they themselves did all things. They oversaw the construction project. Two God-ordained spirit-filled foremen, all right, uh, Bezalel and Aholiab, and they were the skilled craftsmen to oversee the construction of the temple or the tabernacle. I'm sorry. Uh, and then uh, while Moses is up there getting all these things, Israel is down there at the bottom of the mountain being disloyal to God. Uh, this is a sad, sad part of the story, but it's very important to know because it's going to come up in Deuteronomy. Uh, Exodus 32 is the whole golden calf. Um, and if you read Deuteronomy 9 through 10, I mean, this is Moses going, don't ever forget what happened that day. While I was up there, what were your parents doing? And you, were, you saw it. I mean, you were there, a part of it. Um, in Exodus 32, uh, they, Moses delayed coming down. They told Aaron, make a God for us that will go before us. Uh, and so... Um, uh, Let's see. Yeah, he says, uh, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Um, so he's saying, this is Yahweh God, this little golden calf. And God was not going to, God was not okay with that. Exodus thirty-two, thirteen through 14. Um, and God says, you know, he's going to destroy the nation of Israel right there at Mount Sinai. And this is what Moses says to God. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. So he's bringing up the Abrahamic covenant. And, and again, I think this is more about testing Moses' faith. This isn't God being like, oh, you're right, Moses, I totally forgot about that. This is, this is God testing Moses, and, and Moses going, you can't be unfaithful to your word. Um, and, uh, and it says, you swore by yourself, all this land uh, which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm that he had said to do to his people. Exodus 32, um, uh, Moses basically says, I'm going to try to make atonement for your sin. Uh, and God says, I will destroy who I will destroy, and you trust me. He says, whoever sinned against me, I'll blot him out of my book, but my angel shall go before you. Um, I will punish them for their sin. In Exodus 33, Moses is like, if you're not going with us, I can't do this. You've got to go with us, and he tells him to show him his glory. Have you ever heard that whole story? People take that story all the time and use it for ridiculous things, you know, like, you know, we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to go down to Atlanta and share the gospel. God, show us your glory. You know, and it's like, that's not what this is about. This is Moses asking God, please, please don't leave us and lead us. You have to lead us because apart from you, we can't do this and uh, and so he reiterates the Abrahamic covenant depart go up from here you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham Isaac and Jacob I will send an angel before you to drive out the Canaanite the Amorite the Hittite Perizzite Hivite and Jebusite um and and again this is kind of cool so there was a tent a meeting outside the camp where Moses would go and meet with God face to face again this is not God the Father or God the Spirit this is Christ, pre incarnate Christ, meeting with Moses in the tent, uh, equipping Moses to, to lead his people. Uh, he used to speak to Moses face to face. And I think it's so cool. This is something that I just feel like we just read right past. But it's like, so Moses would speak to him face to face. When he'd come out, he would be glowing from talking to God. Moses would return to the camp. It says, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. I mean, he would just, he's like, I'm, I'm staying here with God. And uh, it's kind of neat. And Joshua's going to be the one that leads him into the land. In Exodus 35, or 34, God replaces the, 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 the tablets. The covenant is renewed again. Uh, and, uh, and, and it says that Moses was up there again for 40 days and 40 nights. He wrote the tablets, uh, the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And then from Exodus 35 to 40, all that stuff he told him about the tabernacle is done. Bezalel, Holy Ab, they oversee the whole thing. Everything is donated and then built. Um, Exodus 40. The tabernacle is erected on Mount Sinai on the first day of the first month. So there we are. Uh, they they left Egypt on Passover, first day of the first month. One year to the day they left Egypt, the tabernacle is is made and erected. And so um, Exodus 19, 1 through 2, it says, uh, these are just my time markers. The third month, the sons of Israel are going out of the land of Israel. On that very day, they came to Sinai. Uh, so I guess that means they were there for 10 months, right? Yeah. Uh, Exodus 40, 17, the first day of the second year, the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. So it took 10 months for the instruction on the mountain, the rebellion, the renewal of the covenant, and the construction of the tabernacle. Uh, and it's been one year since they left Egypt at that point. And uh, that's where Leviticus is going to begin, by the way. So tabernacle is erected, and then Leviticus begins at that point, One year to the day, or close to that, was when God begins to tell him what to do with the tabernacle. Uh, Numbers 1, these are some more time markers, 1 through 2. It says the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai at the tent of meeting on the first of the second month in the second year uh, after they come out of the land of Egypt saying take a census of the people of Israel, number them. That's where numbers gets its name. So that means it probably took a month uh, for Leviticus to happen. Uh, And then Numbers 10, 11 through 12, it says in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th of the month, the cloud was lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony and they set out. Into the wilderness to go to the promised land. So that means what uh, twenty? Was it twenty more days after that uh, that they numbered Israel? They got ready. They observed the Passover and they and they started heading towards the land. Um, and I just the last little thing here. This is how Exodus ends. It says after the tabernacle was was erected, it says then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Very rare does the glory of the Lord appear on earth? But here it is, and, it, and God comes and dwells in the tabernacle. Now again, this is mind-blowing stuff. I think this is the glory, this is Christ and all of his glory dwelling in the Holy of Holies for a, a, a period of time there uh, until, you know, uh, at some point, they you know he destroys Shiloh, and at some point, the glory had to leave again, and then they build the temple later, and the glory returns. Um, and... uh Anyway, uh, so the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. There's something different about the glory of the Lord that is there in the Holy of Holies in the tent of meeting that Moses met with him outside the camp. I don't know a lot about that, but it's different. Moses could go in the tent of meeting just fine. Joshua could hang out there with God, talk to him face to face. Moses can't go into the Holy of Holies where the glory of the Lord is. And it says the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, this is important, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. They saw the presence of God throughout this whole thing. So, again, you've got to think about that. You talk about the depravity of our hearts Even if you could see God with your eyes right now, you would still disobey him. And you still wouldn't trust him because they didn't. And you can't look at them. Remember what Paul says? Look at them as an example. Don't ever assess yourself higher than you ought. We are all sinners. We're all prone to distrust him. We're all prone uh, to, to flee from him. It's only his wonderful grace and mercy that not only redeems us, but like the Israelites, leads us through this life and even takes us to be with himself. But it's his faithfulness to these promises, these covenants he's made, which guarantee that he will do what he said he'll do. So right now, all we have is the Abrahamic covenant. So the land, the nation, all the earth blessed must happen. It's an everlasting possession. They'll be in it forever. But when we get to the new covenant, that's super important for us. Because what Christ did on the cross that day, he's bound by oath to himself to do exactly what he said which is to give us new life, to breathe life into us, to give us a new spirit, to cause us to believe, to follow, to love, to obey, and to make sure that we never stray from him again. So that's neat. But anyway, that's Genesis and Exodus. I tried just to hit the main points to because, like, like I said, when you read Deuteronomy, you're going to be like, oh, yeah. But if you go read it yourself, it makes way more sense. Uh, but that, so we'll do the same thing with Leviticus and Numbers next week. Numbers is the main narrative, so that's where we'll be most of our time. But it'll I think it'll just be very, very helpful before we open Deuteronomy. Any questions? Yeah. Questions. No, it's just that Abraham and Covenant is there. It's Abraham, Isaac, So it'll come through Israel. Think about it that way. It stops with Israel. From that point forward, it'll be the people of Israel. But then you start watching, well, that little Genesis 3.15, the head crusher, that's happening too. And, And from that point, it's the line of Judah and the Perez, and then you start going through, and then you follow the line of the kings all the way down to Joseph. You know what I mean? And then Mary comes through David as well, and then you got Jesus. So that's also happening simultaneously with this. But Deuteronomy is going to be focused on the land. It's going to be focused on that Abrahamic covenant being fulfilled and happening. It's going to be focused on them being uh, obedient to the Mosaic covenant that he's making on Mount Sinai. And so that's the reason I'm focusing in on that part. We're focusing on Abrahamic Mosaic covenants because that's what's really coming to play in Deuteronomy. But at the very end of Deuteronomy, 2930, he talks about, it's like this little, like, remember remember the head crusher? It's like a little glimpse into the new covenant. And it's just like, It's special, so I can't wait to get to that part. But good question. Any other questions? I don't do questions enough, but that was a lot. I don't even know what I just said. (laughs) Huh? Yeah, it's on tape. (laughs) Go back and listen to it. All right, let me pray for us.